Hi, everyone. Welcome back to the Life with Magic podcast, your one-stop shop for encouragement, affirmations, and guidance for self-optimization. This is where you can find your passions and purpose by learning about effective self-discovery tools. And every week we have conversations about sex, kink, gender, sexuality, spirituality, performance art, and many, many more things. Today's guest is the amazing Camille Oshundara. She is a cultural activist, multifaceted artist, author, scholar, and many more things. Her work focuses on creating spaces for marginalized folks, and her passions are rooted in fighting for liberation for all. She is the physical manifestation of joy, power, and creativity, and I am incredibly honored to have her here today. Okay, let me just say that Camille makes me nervous for many reasons. She is someone that I look up to for quite some time. It comes from a place of adoration and just pure fanboy energy. Like every time we start talking, it's like all the words leave my brain. (laughs) Welcome, Camille. Hi, Magic. Thank you so much for the introduction. Thank you for being here. So my first question for you is, how are you? How's your spirit today? I'm doing pretty good. Um, Just finding a way to kind of carve out my own peace and just set my own boundaries so I can continue to make my art, but also, you know, just take care of myself. What are you currently working on? I'm working on a couple things. Personally, I have a written project that I hope I can introduce to everyone next year. I've been dropping some um, visual images that are um, being done by myself and Damien Jelaine, who is my collaborator from Guadalupe. So we've been dropping these like genre inspired portraits that deal with Black life and elevating it. So we are, um, so I'm working on a written project that has poetry and short stories for that. And then just continuing to navigate myself in uh, entertainment industry um, as a writer and producer. So there's lots coming in that realm as well. Oh, that's really exciting. You mentioned Guadalupe. Do you have any connections to Guadalupe? Yeah. Oh, well, just through my uh, my collaborator. Um, Damien is an incredible photographer, um, and we shot a picture called The Dress or The Skinning of Ignorance last year where I am a queen of war, and I have skinned all of my enemies, which are the clan in this image, and I'm mm-hmm. holding a, um, a beheaded <laughs> skull in my hand. And so after we made that image together, we were just like, there's some crazy synergy here. You want to make um, horrifying and empowering images about Black power? And we said yes. And so that's the project. So he introduced me to Guadalupe because he is from there. Um, And so I I went out there last year and uh, we did a lot of work. And it was just incredible. So that's my connection. But I'd love to go back. Shout out to all my Caribbean folks because y'all are incredible. (laughs) (laughs) That sounds amazing. Like the fact that you found this person in this area, but you're still able to collaborate and create powerful pieces. Like as soon Mm -hmm. as you started describing the piece, I remember specifically seeing it on my timeline and stopping in my tracks because it was so visually captivating. And the message behind it was like, it was just something that no words could describe. So what was the inspiration behind that piece? Actually, that that was Damien. It was, he, he had the, the image had come to him in a dream and he had been following me on Instagram, um, especially during, you know, I am very explicit and vocal about my political views I have been in the past. And so he has seen me as a warrior and he just seen this image of me like at the end of battle and victory. And so he asked if um, he could come to LA and we could shoot it. And so mm-hmm. we did. So um, it was just a mixture of, it was really just like synergy. I, I walked into his dream and then he came to LA. So we made it. That is amazing. Yeah. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. How was your upbringing? When did you start really diving into activism? My upbringing is is really interesting. I'm pretty tri-coastal in nature. I was born in Philly, 
I spent my childhood in Georgia and then I matured as an adult um, and got into my career in, in L.A. So that's a little bit of just my sensibilities are kind of all over the place. Um, and But in general, uh, my activism and spirituality, I think, is one that has just kind of just been a part of my lineage and part of who I am from birth. You know, I've always been someone who is interested in justice and standing up for folks who are seen as the underdogs. And I just feel like that energy is one that I probably inherited from some great ancestor or something. Um, but um, growing up, I grew up in a Baptist Christian household, um, and it was one that was pretty inclusive, but the, the rest of the world and the other churches that we were part of were pretty standard and conservative, um, led by cis charismatic men, and were ones that were pretty just non-accepting to folks who were queer or um, too creative or anything outside of the status quo. I got baptized as a child at eight, actually. And then um, a, a, not too long later, in my journal, I remember just denouncing Christ and letting go of my um, tied to Christianity just because I realized it was not a place that honored the truth of who I was. And so from that point on, as a kid, I had just been traveling and um, figuring out, you know, other religions. Like my mom used to tell me that, you know, she would buy me books for the traditions, but she wouldn't take me to church. <laughs> so I was, you know, reading about um, Kabbalah, you know, reading about Buddhism, um, the Muslim faith. Um, and I ended up landing um, on Ifa, which is a traditional African religion by the Yoruba people. And I got to a space of just really feeling so seen by a religion that had Black gods, uh, gender-fluid gods, women situated as the creators of the planet. And it was just something that really changed my life. And so um, Ifa is really, is really about um, achieving Ewa Puele, which is balanced character, not necessarily proselytizing or converting other people. Um, and it's very secret and sacred. So all of those traits just really hopped out and really grabbed me but I've just mm -hmm. been able to experience a lot of like self-transformation in the religion so yeah that's a little bit how I got there and Ifa is one that's really big about justice Shango who is um the Orisha on my head is a warrior he's a king um and he's someone who's all about strategic victory in war so I feel like um I'm really blessed and thankful to be in a spiritual space that not only acknowledges and affirms my gender identity and my queerness, but also my love of justice um, and Black lives. So that's something that I'm, I, I feel very, very happy about in my life right now. That is really wonderful to find a religion that makes you feel seen and to find, to see yourself as a queer individual and all the different intersections of your identity, to see that reflected in religion is something that a lot of us have not had the experience or the like that, you know, that journey. So my next question to you is, for the people who are interested in learning about IFA, where can they start? Um, I would say, you know, first and foremost, IFA is a tradition that is um, it's, it's based on reverence of ancestors and, and is elder-led. So um, oftentimes, you know, finding a temple um, and finding a godparent as, as, as their kind of uh, colloquial name um, is really is really important. Having someone who can help guide us through study and guide us into the into tradition is essential. But I've talked to a lot of folks um, across the U.S. who say that you know because of you know the um, because of the way Abrahamic traditions have really been seen as like the standard for religion, they don't have access to Ifa temples, mesas, um, ilays as they're called. So I recommend starting online with books. Um, Maya Luo, who is uh, the creator of my lineage, Baba Ifa Karajay, 
has a lot of books online, like um, the Handbook of Yoruba Concepts. And he has a variety of others that are based on the Arisha or just other practices. I always start there. Mm-hmm. And then if there's not a temple that's physically close to you, seeing if there are ones that you can, you know, zoom into or have other, you know, like video chat of, or phone sessions or study sessions. Uh, to a good way to get started is, you know, to find a priest or priestess who can give you a reading. Readings are the number one way that we kind of like do diagnostic check-ins for ourselves spiritually, physically, mentally, and emotionally. They also kind of help us identify our lineage. Mm-hmm. So those can be done um, virtually as well. So right now with the pandemic, I will say, I, I hope a lot of temples are relying on like virtual means of communication. But if you can't find that, always starting with the books and, you know, just seeing how it can be embedded into your everyday life. Whether that's an altar, conversation with your friends, you know, finding other folks online who are talking about spiritualism or Ifa, et cetera. Thank you for that, because I've personally been looking for books, but I tend to come up, you know, empty handed. Is there a way for us to order directly through the person that you mentioned? I know that they, look, I'm not trying to support Amazon, so <laughs> I have to put that out. <laughs> just because, you know, hey, we don't want, you know, we don't need any more white billionaires. Um, I do know that um, Caraday's books are available online. Um, you can also find them at like some black owned bookstores. Esawan Books is a bookstore in LA that I know has an online uh, uh, ordering platform as well. So mm-hmm. I would look at black owned bookstores. I'm sure do you have shipping options, but if not, they are available on Amazon. Gotcha. Gotcha. I'll definitely do that. Because the first thing I was going to ask was that, are these books available on Amazon? Because accessibility, two-day shipping, but also we're trying to stop supporting Bezos and, you know, all that. Yeah. All that good shit. It's a catch thing too, but however you can get the spiritual information, please get it. You know, Black on first, but as long as you get it. Right, right. My next question is, are you a priestess now? I've seen, a you know, a bit of your journey online as far as your initiation. But I don't really I didn't understand what that meant because the context was, you know, very personal to you and your journey. So can you elaborate on your level in Ifa right now? Yes. In Ifa, um, I am a priestess of Shango. I completed my Ocha, uh, which is the initiation to become a priest or a priestess in college. So it's been almost three years now. Um, it's really interesting because um yeah, just depending on lineage and where you are, folks who are priests and priestesses do different work, right? So you can be a priest um, just because you've been initiated to heal yourself, to heal your lineage, or to heal someone in your family to help elevate your own consciousness. Or you can, um, you know, become a priest and go directly into doing spiritual work for other folks um, if you've completed your training. Um, so I'm at a space right now where um, I'm a junior priestess. I'm continuing my training, um, but I do do some education work and I use my social media as a way to um, spread any information that I can with folks who are considered novice or folks who are uninitiated. Uh, Ifa is really a religion that my uh, godmother, Ifala Day, says is secret and sacred. So mm-hmm. you'll see a lot of people who can't talk too much about um, ritual and practices. Some folks don't even share their Ifa name. It just depends on lineage. Um, but mm-hmm. for me, my Ifa name is my legal name and I do um, work as a priestess in my life. So yes. That is wonderful. That makes me respect your work even more just because the fact that you've gone through the training and you've gone through, you've put in so much work to become at the level that you're in, you know, as someone who completely gave up on religion, you know, it sparks something within me to see someone who's like, I found my place, I found my peace, and this is where I'm going to continue my purpose and I'm going to continue my work. 
it's kind of like you answer your calling and then you start to educate others, which is something that a lot of people can consume in a way that is, you know, social media makes it easy for us to create accessible content. And the content that you create is something that I really enjoy. So knowing the journey and knowing that you've worked really, really hard to get here is something that makes me like look up to it even more. Thank you. Thank you so much. And there's a lot of, you know, I feel like Ifa and a lot of indigenous African-based spirituality are a non-linear, non-hierarchical structure. We Mm -hmm. do have a structure that uh, honors those who are elders. And that's Mm -hmm. about not only age, but years in the tradition. So it's a mixture Mm -hmm. of both. For me, I'm someone who is an older Risha, which um, in Ifa is a junior priest. But my godmother, for example, is an Ianifa. And like the masculine version of that would be like a Baba Lao, someone who is a high priest or a high priestess. They can now birth children. They have a temple. Um, you know, there's a lot more protocol that they follow that they're aware of. So there are just complete levels to it. But as a junior priestess, I'm, you know, always in the space of knowing and learning. But I also have to remind myself that there are some there's so much that I can teach and share with folks. So I make an effort to do so. Can you tell us how your activism and spirituality intersect? Yeah, it's really interesting because when I was first coming into Ifa and really just looking for a tradition or a spiritual practice that fed me, I was uh, I went to Agape International Spiritual Center, which is the transdenominal a spiritual space in Los Angeles, meaning that they are inclusive of practices and wisdom and truth of various traditions of spiritualities and cultures. So they're not um, one that is going to centralize Christianity or centralize Buddhism. For example, they mix everything in as, as equal truth. Right. Mm. So I was at that church and was really interested in learning about um, just like esoteric qualities, you know, the law of attraction, uh, spiritual values, you know, how to work with universal energies. I was really interested in that. Um, And I came to a space where I realized, yes, positivity is important. And yes, there are a variety of values like harmony and unconditional love that we should always radiate outward. But I had so much rage within me um, because of the injustice that I could not be blind to as a black queer person, you know? So I found myself questioning like, okay, it's one thing to be able to maintain my own peace in a crazy world, but it's another thing to figure out how I can defend myself and protect myself. And I just didn't know how to do that within a, um, like, like a, a looser spiritual practice. So when I came into Ifa, I was really interested in the idea of self-defense, of fighting back and also maintaining peace. And um, as an indigenous tradition, Ifa is really based around justice for marginalized. It's based around, um, you know, the importance and the divinity that is inherent in Black life. And those are just specifics that I did not get from like, you know, just kind of fully open, inclusive, universal, esoteric practices. I needed it from the African mouth. I needed it from indigenous Black women, you know. I needed it from queer folks. Um, so that's how I got into Ifa. Um, and and um, the deities in Ifa are ones that I feel like really do embody freedom fighters. Um, you know, Shango, who is a king, his color is red, his number is six. He is the Orisha that like dominates my consciousness. And he's a fighter. He's a warrior. He's all about sh- a war and a strategy um, and victory. And so just to even know that those type of traits um, and embodiments are present in the deities really helped empower me as somebody who was going through my own war every day and also was working to maintain my peace. You know, we have Orisha that are like Ogun, you know, who are known to like, you know, 
kill abusers with his machete, you know? And so I needed to hear stories like that um, embedded into my spiritual practice for me to like have full faith, you know? Mm-hmm. And mm-hmm. it was my first time seeing war, justice, blood, and liberation be seen as a spiritual goal. And to me, that is just uh, like, it's, it was life-changing. So yeah, th- that's how they were integrated. Um, and as a person, I just always knew that, you know, uh, yes, you know, nonviolence is important and nonviolence is a strategy, you know, but also too, when you're being attacked, what do you do? You know, right. how do you, you know, like what, you know, and so I feel like there, we should have different spiritual responses to the violence that is being directly sent to queer, trans, non-binary Black peoples. And I felt like Ifa was one that helped me get closer to understanding like how I could address that in my own life. So yeah, I feel like activism and the spirituality go hand in hand um, for me, but also as a Black person, I don't know how they couldn't, right. <laughs> you know? So how do you take care of your spirit while fighting injustice? Um, self-care is a practice that I is evolving as I do. Um, my activism is evolving as I do as well. I feel like the time that I'm able to spend at my altar in prayer, in ritual, is what replenishes me. Um, Ifa is really big on ritual. It's really big on protocol. It's really big on um, spending time with self. It's really heavy on meditation, similar to the way that um, um, Muslim faiths um, require folks to pray constantly or to pray at different times um, at, at the day, every day, every week. Ifa has similar practices as well. So um, a lot of that is based on like composure, inner peace, caution. We have values that we follow as well that um, deal with how we can have balanced character. So Ewa Puele is all about balance, right? And um, Shango as Orisha is all about balance. So balancing the quiet time that I have with my altar, um, the time that I have visioning and writing, the time that I spend with my friends, um, making room for pleasure uh, sexually in my life, but also just um, platonically with my friends, folks who will give me reciprocity, you know, who will pour energy back into me. Those are the ways that I've been able to kind of keep myself grounded amid everything that's going on. And, you know, lastly, uh, art is everything to me going to witness folks who make art, having creative art sessions with my artist friends who I respect, um, making art alone by myself, editing and re-editing, just being in that space of like um, active Black imagination is really important for me. And I feel like that's what keeps me grounded amid everything. If I didn't have art and a way to create, um, I will, I'll always have a way. <laughs> so that's what makes me happy. And, you know, that's what keeps me balanced. Like no matter what's going on, I can find a way to create something from nothing. Um, and that's what really gives me peace. Amen to that. So what's your latest like work artistically? Artistically, I've been, uh, I'm so my first love is poetry and a spoken word performance. Um, because I've been working full-time as a producer, um, performing has, some, has been something that I haven't been able to do in a while. Um, but, you know, I perform for, for Red Bull. I perform for the California African-American Museum. Um, I've spoken at the Broad Museum and, and done a variety of spaces like that. So whenever I can perform, that is something that I do. Right now, I've been focusing on writing. So I've been writing poetry that, of course, can be performed, but um, it also can be read, um, working on short stories and screenwriting. And all of that just requires me being the lab all the time. So that's just been um, a process that I've been in right now. I've also been, you know, consistently working towards like a future um, that involves like performance and acting and being um, on stage. Uh, I think that that's tied to like my spoken word performance already. So that's what's on the horizon. But writing is always my bread and butter. Mm. If I put you on the spot right now and ask for a short piece, is that something that we could uh, dive into? Yeah, I have a one minute piece I can pull on my phone. Yay. Okay, cool. I have one. Ready? Yep. 
When they look at me, they see a black body requiring a mold. I need to be told what I'm supposed to be a threat and a source of profit, a nuisance if I choose my own comfort. God forbid I protest because I recognize we don't fit within these misconceptions, within these racist speculations that give birth to more hate and desire death as the fate for darker skinned communities for generations. Yet all in the same breath, when they look at me, they see the enslaved overcoming the master. The breathing face of a history they attempted to erase, reclaiming its rightful place. They see that the womb from which I came gave lives to revolutions they refused to name. That the melanin in my skin is strong enough to wash the entire world black. That the spirit is rooted so deeply, even after being removed, renamed, and chained, I still inherit the memory of centuries back. Of liberation, of worth, of freedom which is why my cage must remain intact. When they look at me, they see a threat. And in fact, that's exactly what the fuck I am. Ooh, shit. Yes. <laughs> it's called type threat. That's always my little one minute piece when folks put me on the spot. <laughs> I, I love you had it ready. <laughs> that was perfect. I love that you had it ready and you just went right into it. Like you're such a powerful speaker. When I was watching your TED Talk, the whole time, like I was sitting there snapping my fingers, just in amazement, in awe at the way that you voice yourself. I was so scared of my TED Talk. I was trying to find a way to like, you know, how does one explain spoken word? And it feels like, you know, white people and folks who are um, aligned with whiteness are always trying to find a way to like dissemble black art to understand how we do what we do I think is like you know which I think comes from a very like scientific Eurocentric form of like uh intelligence knowledge analysis you know and so when I did my TED talk I was like okay well what if I explained the power of like incantation with rhyme what if I just continue to rhyme throughout this piece as a way to, you know, embody like some of the qualities of spoken word? Um, and so I was trying to find a middle ground between them. So I'm really happy that it um, that you received it well, because I was a freshman when I did it. I was the youngest person who did that TED talk and I was so nervous, but um, it was well received. And I really felt like I got my truth out there. So I saw a piece of writing from you that said my aesthetic is an ode to my ancestors. Can you elaborate on what that means? Yeah. So as a, um, a as a black body in the U.S., um, some would say a colonized body in the U.S., I realized that um, the way that, you know, black women, black queer folks have been conditioned to like fashion ourselves is after our oppressors, um, you know, like and there are ways that, you know, black femmes and black folks consistently innovate um, and, you know, are the sources for all of the mainstream style in the U.S. and the world, I would say. But still, you know, there are just all this respectability politics all around how Black folks are supposed to present themselves um, uh, so that we can be professional, we can be hired, we can be worth, you know, the white dollar or a pain in our time. And I'm just somebody who just doesn't give a fuck about those standards. And I've had to consistently push myself to... Um, reclaim ownership over my body and my identity um, and really push away just this conformist of like version of self. So my tattoos and my piercings, my, my green hair, my stretched earlobes are um, 
are ways that I am paying homage to to indigenous ancestry. You know, you can look at black indigenous people across the world if you want to go to Africa, if you, if you want to go to the Melanesian folks who, you know, have always practiced body modification as a form of ritual, as a form of adornment um, to show social status, uh, to communicate with, with other folks um, as rites of passage. And so to me, I, um, you know, as someone who is not a part of those indigenous communities, but is once again, um, just honoring the fact that I have come from those lineages, I like to see my own body modification as an extension of those traditions. So, you know, I get tattoos that have meaning. I get tattoos when I overcome uh, obstacles and boundaries in my life. You know, I continue to to stretch my ears um, and wear my ears as they hang, you know, wearing styles that don't um, attempt to you know, hide the fact that I'm really proud of how I've marked my body. You know, I got my hand tattoos when I was in college. And, you know, and I remember this person asked me, you know, why even go to college if you're going to get your hands tattooed? Mm. And it just made me realize, you know, once again, how flimsy this entire, like, meritocracy is in the U.S., you know. And I told them, like, you know, um, when, when the person asked me, like, you know, why, you know, why would I go to college if I got my hands tattooed? I was like, what do you think I do? Like, what do you think my profession is? Right. Mm-hmm. And so I think we have a choice. And especially now in this generation, we have a choice to you know, whether we're going to abide by these standards and uphold them, whether we're going to smash them by um, being ourselves openly and loudly. And so I've taken the second choice. You know, I want to make sure that, um, you know, if someone wants to work with me or wants to collaborate or wants my opinion on a project that they realize from the moment they see me what type of person they're working with. You know, I like to design my cover to be read. <laughs> I want folks to understand, you know, from a distance that I have, um, there are certain choices that I've made, certain choices that I've made, and I do not want to be a part of a world that wants to erase me. So, um, you know, I've and some folks may see it as limiting, but I don't, you know, I really do believe we can be ourselves at all times, you know, and that's what I think that's the commitment that I, I, I've done with my body modifications and some of the permanent um, adornments I've done to my skin. And I love them, you know, and they're very queer. They're very black. You know, they can't be unseen. Um, so I feel like that's always my ancestors. They are beautiful. Like your modifications are beautiful. Every time I see you pop up on my timeline, I'm like, I'm inspired to like go out, get another tattoo, or I'm just inspired to like radically accept myself and my individuality and my need to express myself this way. Cause you know, like you said, there's so many stigmas that come around from just having tattoos or having body modifications that are visible and just very, very in your face. But the fact that you rock yours so perfectly and so effortlessly and so beautifully, I'm sure it inspires a ton of other people to just be like, fuck it to the system. You know, if it's limiting, it's only limiting in the sense that it allows me to weed out people that I don't want to work with. Because if you see me and you do not accept my character, then you don't accept me as an individual. Like you don't see me and you don't understand me. And that's not someone that I want to work with. Like if you can't be seen in a place where you work, what's the point of giving your time and energy to that, you know? Yeah, you know, and it's just, it's only going to come up in other ways. You know, I feel like there's this perceived safety that I think a lot of like our parents and foremothers and forefathers of, you know, at least in like black households and um, probably other PLC households as well, you know, like they they have bought the lie that if I fashion myself like the white man, like whiteness, I will be safe mm. somehow. And I always say you are a black, queer, indigenous person of color. Um, if you are non-white, if you are non-cis, if you are non-rich, you're already marked. 
Right. You cannot slide below any radar. <laughs> um, if that's just called assimilation. And that is, you know, like what, what we're dealing with, right? This perceived safety from looking like our oppressors. That's how they get us. And so I think, you know, if we all shatter those boxes and all show up as ourselves, whether it's because you're a free co or because you are a queer creative or because you are a punk rock bitch, whatever it is, you know, you say no and you're going to take me as I am or not take me at all. And that's when we, we realize again and again that we are the source. They cannot live without us. You know, they also can't profit from us if we don't let them. So I feel like, um, you know, it's just it, it, it's a first step in helping to um, fight the indoctrination that has been so embedded into our families and the fear that has been so embedded into our families. You know, we can't, you know, folks are dying um, just for walking the street being themselves, you know, and it's like, who are we to, you know, how could you um, erase your identity? Please let me know how you can be below the radar. It's just not possible. So you might as well be yourself fully, you know, in this time that you have on this planet, you know? So that's just my motto. And that's my belief around it. But I I agree with you completely. So many things that you're saying resonate because like I have two African parents and they wanted me to assimilate from the second that we came, the second we stepped foot on American soil, it was like, blend in, try to do this, go to school, become this, become an engineer, become a lawyer, like find a high paying profession, like all these things that they were striving for that didn't really resonate with me because I wanted to be an artist. So it's like part of their brainwashing, I would say, was when I started, when I turned 18, I started getting piercings. I started, I got my, I got my septum. I got my, um, my ears pierced. I started getting tattoos and they were both like in shock and they were trying their hardest to like make me fit into boxes where I could not fit into. So like to anyone listening right now, who wants that like source of like inspiration, like to be yourself, like this is it. This is your message to allow yourself to really embrace who you are as an individual, whatever that looks like to you. Do not be afraid of the consequences because we already pay the consequences of just existing. Like as a queer black person, I already pay the consequences. I can't walk down the street freely regardless of what I'm wearing or how tatted I am or how non-tatted I am without my piercings, it doesn't really matter because the place that we live at right now, we can't exist freely. So take control of what you can control and the things that are out of your control, like find ways to overcome them. Like create your own story, create your own narrative. Like that's something that resonated as you were speaking that's something that you know came to me so I just wanted to share that with the listeners oh 100% and also just like you said I you know I also dealt with this and consistently am trying to unlearn this myself is that like you know it's a choice that it's, it's like folks present to us the choice of assimilating and making a lot of money or being an artist and somehow having still to struggle, right? Because that Mm -hmm. is the narrative around artistry. And that's also a colonial narrative. You know, there are so many artists that are literally popular because they have branded the most niche parts of their identity and found their audience. So I always say like, you know, just be yourself, find what makes you unique, find what you can uniquely offer that someone else cannot give whatever story that you can only tell and run with it, repeat it, amplify it, keep going. Um, Because all of these folks that are very vanilla, very mainstream, very corporate, very blonde are going out of style 
And what are they doing right now? Picking up alternative fashion, picking up blurred culture, picking up gamer culture, picking up queer culture, and trying to refashion and rebrand themselves as people who are of the people. So we're always a source of information, source of inspiration. But I think that our desire to like hide or our desire to keep it behind closed doors or keep that for like, you know, outside of the office is one that can hold us back. Now you can play the game too and find somewhere in between that and, you know, like, yeah, make your money. But I just don't agree with the, you know, with um, the binary that I, I knew, at least I know that my parents presented to me, which is like, be a doctor. <laughs> or be something else. Once again, which ignores all of the systemic barriers that keep like black queer folks from having these high paying jobs. Because you know, like, you know, so it, it just it just makes me once again just say that they're, they're not mutually exclusive, right? Like being yourself and being an artist is also a way in this day and age to be highly successful financially, personally, creatively, right? And going the um conventional route, law school PhD doctor is not guaranteed to get you famous or rich. <laughs> so, you know, like we just have to kind of break these misconceptions because they're once again based in this narrative of like equality for all. And that's just not the case. So do what you want to fucking do. You know what I mean? Because that's probably what you're going to be best at <laughs> at the end of the day. Amen. Amen yeah. to that. Like I would have never guessed that I would have been the king of beards and titties, but yet here I am. Like here I am embracing. <laughs> I'm embracing the shit that that brings me joy and I dedicated like the last three years to just going full on hard for my goals, for my dreams and like my dreams without the limitations of other people's like external forces, like without other people's influence. So it's possible if I can be the king of beers and titties and make an income, you can do the same thing. Like you can become whatever it is that you want to become. Like do not allow other people's limitations, especially your parents, because we come from a different generation and I respect my parents and I love them for all that they've done and the different lessons that they've instilled in me. But we come from different generations. We come from different places and they see the world differently than I do. But I know that if I stick true to my truth, I will prevail and I will find a way because I'm committed to it. Like when, when you believe in yourself full heartedly, you can go literally so many places that you would have never imagined. But it all starts with the self-belief. So believe in yourself, do what the fuck you want to do and fuck any limitations that are placed in front of you. Like you have the power to overcome anything. Period. Point blank period. <laughs> period. <laughs> period is like the new Ashe, amen. They all mean the same thing. <laughs> <laughs> they do. We some city girls, period. Yes. <laughs> yes. Random question for you. Mm -hmm. If you could go to any country on the African continent, where would you go? Ooh, any country. Mm, I mean, I need to go to uh, Nigeria, of course, um, because um, Nigeria um, is the present day home of Yoruba land. So I would love to go back to what is like our Mecca, which is Ile Ife, which is um, old world Yoruba land. That's in Nigeria. I also would love to go to Mozambique. Um, because uh, when I was in college, um, I was I, I chose to uh, take Swahili as my language, Kiswahili, and I know that it's um, spoken in, in Tanzania, Mozambique, Kenya, across Africa. But I just, you know, I I was so interested in 
I think a lot of the politics and the art of, um, and also too like the politics, um, just you know, in, in Mozambique, just dealing with um, like high high mortality rates and high like everything that I learned about the area was one that talked about struggle. Um, yet when I was you know learning the language, they continually referenced some of the culture of the food and the people, and I always knew that I would never get a full picture of, of the country unless I went. So those would be my places. Everyone else tells, tells me to go to Ghana, which I, I want to go everywhere. I have some, I have my, my sister and family has traveled a bit. I have not gone to the continent yet, but I do hope to go back and do some initiations and just be with um, my spiritual folks, meet some Babalaos and Ianifas out there. I know it'll be completely different energy. Mm, I can like I can already envision you going there and just like having a deeper connection to your Ifa spirituality. And that's just amazing. Just the vision of it alone is amazing. So I am manifesting that for you. Oh, thank you. Thank you. Yeah, hopefully soon. As soon as, well, you know, if they even want Americans to go over there. <laughs> as soon as we're, uh, you know, as soon as we're clean. Uh, we yeah. are, <laughs> we're banned from all the other countries. Like they, they don't want us. <laughs> and I don't blame them. Like I want to go back home to Kenya, but like, I don't think they want us there right now. So I'm like, I'm gonna just stay my ass over here. And whenever we stop fucking around and wear our masks and, you know, do our things, maybe, maybe then they can, like, let us get out of timeout and come visit all the beautiful places in the world because I'm tired of America and I'm trying to escape. Yeah, me too. And it was really interesting because it's like, well, there's two things. Like when I was, I'm a huge fan of Saida Hartman and um, she, you know, talks about um, in, in the book, Lose Your Mother, she talks about her going back to the continent and her being called a white woman. She's a black woman, you know, but mm-hmm. her being called a white woman um, just because of her, you know, the fact that she was visibly, you know, ostensibly so American and they associated her as like a as a dispossessed body with a white person and that was the most heartbreaking she talks about it in her introduction and it's just the most heartbreaking thing to read right to like know as a black person who was you know stolen dispossessed you know disembodied that there's not quite a home for black folks in the u.s right like we're exploited we're exploited in our in our own country and then in the continent you know we're seen as foreign because of all of the <laughs> of the imperialism and colonization etc so it makes me wonder you know like just going back to any place you know it has to be spiritually led it has to be uh, you know culturally aligned it has to be personal you know just because globalization is real and across the world like you know black bodies are suffering right but it made me really realize like as a black u.s person like you know it's one thing for me to to embody and to honor African culture and African lineage as a descendant too. But it's another thing to realize like, wow, like I, I occupy a totally different existence. Right. Um, and that's so I just can't, I feel like that is something that can only be like mitigated by us all going back, you know, to our land of origin and just kind of like filling that gap and, and feeling it. Cause you know, like a part of um, even being a part of my religion, you know, like there are African folks, um, you know, who, uh, who completely demonized my religion because they have been taught, you know, by their colonizers that it was evil. And so it's like, you know, like it's just, we are coming from so many different places in a diaspora, you know? And so I think like, you know, just us challenging these binaries across the world is really interesting. Like when, when I was in Guadalupe in the, in the Caribbean, you know, like their view of me was so strange. They were like, this girl is clearly not from here. Who is she? <laughs> they were like, they're like, she's a different type of black. 
that they, you know, that's what I was told. And it's just so interesting to realize, like, as a Black dispossessed person, like, where do we go? You know, it, it's, it's just where we're led. We can be anywhere. We're everywhere. But it's just so interesting to think. As a kid, I was like, I want to run, run away to Africa. And now I'm like, well, where do I go? <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, and I guess it's just spiritually where I feel at home, you know? So I look forward to exploring. Um, but when I went to Guadalupe, I was just in love. It's because I had never been to a pl- to a country that was a black country, you know, like 80 percent or something black folks there. So that's just a different experience in itself. I think one of the biggest things that I've dealt with, like as an African person, is like conversations with black Americans who don't know where they come from or they, you know, their roots trace back to like the South. And they're like, well, the Africans say I don't belong there and the Americans say I don't belong there. So like they that struggle of like trying to find your identity and trying to find the place that you belonging like it's a very 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 hard journey and it's something that I try my best to understand because like I'm lucky enough to know that like I can trace everything back to the farm that my parents like raised me on Mm -hmm. but other people aren't don't have that same type of you know not even privilege like they don't have that same type of I don't even know the word for it like access to their to their lineage and it just breaks yeah. my heart because everything you're saying, it's like it just when you go there, they look at you like you're different. When you're here, they look at you like you're different. So it's like, where do you go? How do you find the places that you belong in? And, and the fact that you said how we you know, mitigate that is by all of us going back and, you know, filling in the gaps. That will be such a revolutionary move. Like I can just imagine all of us going back to our like our homeland and the, like the type of connection that would give to people the type of answers it would give to people and like just envisioning people connecting back with their roots or people being like oh so this is where I come from this is my home like that's a powerful image that I'm like holding space for yeah so thank you for that thank you for that offering yeah thank you you know and it's definitely a privilege I know when my mom took I I haven't taken my ancestry test just because out of fear but my mom took her so I'm just using her results um, for the most for the most part um you know but it was interesting that after I got initiated into Ifa which is um Yoruba Nigerian uh, you know faith and those are its origins you know I realized that my ancestry is Nigerian so it's interesting like you know like you say to just I think on a spiritual level um because most of our lineages are interrupted by colonization and enslavement and they can't be traced that's where I think spirituality really fills the gap um because I've been able to commune with my ancestors you know I've been able to be in a space where I can commune with my gods and the answers that they have told me have lined up with science with or without the verification, you know. So I'm in a space where I'm like, I really do think that us communing with with ancestry, communing with gods, communing with our the God within is is what leads us there, you know. So that's the best source that I have is oral history, um, and divination. That's what leads me back to my ancestry. So I I definitely think for other folks who don't have trust in you know, these DNA tests, which I have every, um, I completely stand behind that, you know, like, I think spirituality is the only way, you know, that is the way that we can hear that inner voice, and we can feel whether we are at home or not, we mm-hmm. can feel, you know, whether this is our space or not, because it's like, you know, our, I think that trusting our ancestors is something that for Black folks is a lot easier than trusting, like, white modern science, which is right. also not as exact, you know, like, I got, um, my friend got her test, and it says, like, yeah, you know, you're from somewhere in sub-Saharan Africa, you're like, cool. <laughs> Where is that? <laughs> you know what I mean? Um, or like no native um, U.S. Um, lineage will come up because of the, you know, intentional obliteration of native folks in the U.S. So it's like, OK, you've got to just 
go back to the res, go back to the continent, figure it out, you know, go through those spiritual uh, rituals and see what comes up for you. Cause I feel like that's where our truth and knowledge and answers will really show themselves. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I have a final question for you. What is the best piece of advice you've ever received? Uh, the best piece of advice I ever received is I think a quote that I read from Audre Lorde that I just, it's just, it's tattooed in my soul. <laughs> um, and she says, if I did not define myself for myself, I would be crunched into other people's fantasies for me and eaten alive. Mm. And that is the advice that I have for others and the mantra that I live by. It's like defining yourself for yourself by any means. Like that's life or death for me. So yeah, that, that that's my advice, you know, not allowing other people's fantasies of you to become your truth because it's just not, the, they're not the same. They really aren't. And, they, and, they, and other people's fantasies of you will not fulfill you in the same way that living in your truth will. Um, so that is what I stand behind. Thank you for that. That's such a wonderful note to like, to leave the message of standing in your truth. And I like the fact that you said, do not allow other people's fantasy of you to become your reality like that hit me to the core because I'm still finding myself and I'm still unlearning past beliefs that were placed on me by other people. Yeah. Yeah. Same. And too, I think in the U.S. and especially, I know you could you know, probably speak to this as someone who, you know, is, is in a erotic work and this erotic performance that, you know, like selling a fantasy or being able to provide a fantasy is, is one thing, which is, can be liberating, can be freeing, is important, but, you know, um, also too, like it, it's a simulation, right? Like we have mm-hmm. to still find our own, like source of center, you know, within all of the work that we do for others and for the world, right? So that's something that I'm, I'm always consistently trying to figure out for myself as well. So you are not alone in that. <laughs> well, I am so happy that we met at BlurredCon. I'm happy that we got to reunite on social media. And I'm really happy that we got to share time and space today. So thank you so, so much for being present. Thank you, Magic. All right, everyone, that wraps it up for this week's episode of Life with Magic. Big thank you to my guest, Camille Oshundara, for sharing her words of wisdom with us. Thank you to Frankie Nonsense for mixing and editing this episode. And as always, much love and gratitude to you for tuning in. See you next time.